Hey everybody, it is Pamela Roxanne coming at you with a brand new interview. I'm so excited to talk to my guest today. It is Kevin Kelton. He's a producer out of LA who has worked on 22 television programs. Do you know how serious that is? Do you know how legendary? I'm excited. I don't know about you. I'm so excited to talk to him about, because I plan on going into a similar field. So any tips and tricks that he could leave me will be dope. Any tips and tricks that he might could help you, an inspiring comedian, inspiring producer, or anything of the nature, a screenwriter, come on down for the interview. But right now, we're going to get into the playlist on Spotify, all created by myself. There are the Pamela Roxanne playlist. This one is called Summer Jam. If you go to the app and you type in Pamela Roxanne into the search bar, you should see a lovely cartoon of myself. And just click it and you can jam with me wherever you go. Thank you so much for listening today. And we'll be right back with Kevin Kilton. Hi, everybody. It's Pamela Roxanne. And I have an amazing guest for you guys today. This is Kevin Kelton. He's a producer out of L.A. who has worked on 22 network shows. How are you doing today, Kevin? I am doing well. It's 9 a.m. here, and it is a beautiful day in Los Angeles, California. Gotcha. Oh, so you're still based in North, uh, uh, L.A.? I am. I am. I'd like to get out, though. And you were just telling me that you live in uh, in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, and I'd love to find a house near you. <laughs> That's right. I would, we can switch. I, I bet you, you'll have fun. Yeah, there you go. House switching. Okay, we've already set a deal here. <laughs> so, can you, so I already said you're a producer out of LA. Can you tell me what it's like being a producer and what gave you the drive to even want to do something so crazy? Well, um, I started writing stand-up comedy with and for my brother, who's a stand-up comic. And back in the 70s and 80s, he was rather hot, he was getting on The Tonight Show and Merv Griffin and all those other shows. And uh, by hanging out with him and going to the comedy clubs with him, hanging out with his friends who were comedians, I kind of learned by osmosis how to write comedy. And uh, after I got out of college, I had a business degree, but I figured, what the hell, I'll give uh, comedy writing a shot. And if that doesn't work, I'll come home and, and get a real job. And 40 years later, I'm still here. So I guess it worked. Okay. Did you have expectations going into it? Did you think that you were going to do extremely well based on watching your brother? You know, I don't know. I really honestly don't remember what I thought. I, I think I thought it was a crapshoot. Um, I, I had a little bit of an insight into what it takes to start a show business career because I saw what he did. So maybe I knew a couple of shortcuts or, or maybe I was able to avoid a couple of mistakes that other people might make. But uh, it, it really was. And, and again, because I was familiar with some of his friends, I started out as a stand-up comic just to showcase my material, but, you know, people kind of knew my name, knew I was Bobby's brother. Uh, that might have given me a little bit of help. It wasn't nepotism, but it might have uh, eased my path a little bit. Gotcha. Did you, have you ever bombed? Because oh, yes. I talked to a bunch oh, of comedians, yes. and they, they never really expect to bomb. Everybody thinks they're funny. Right, right. I bombed, I think, my first time on stage. I think I got two laughs, which propelled me to do it again. Mm-hmm. But two laughs out of, you know, five minutes is not a lot. Um, yes, everybody, I think, 
you know, it would be amazing if somebody had a career where they never bombed. Now, you never expect it, and you never like it. Even the best comedians get very frustrated when they bomb. But uh, it's it's par for the course. It's like you saying, uh, you're a boxer. Have you ever gotten punched? You know, it, it happens. That's right. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So how long were you working the clubs and the stand-up scene before you got professional writing opportunities? Um, it was relatively quick for me. Uh, I did a little uh, of the club work while I was in college during my summers. Then I graduated. I moved out to L.A. Uh, I started actually as a bank teller just because I needed a job. And so for six months, I was a bank teller while I was writing jokes and trying to sell them. And then uh, about six months after I got to L.A., I just went full time into the stand up. And I would say a year, a year and a half after that, uh, I got my first writing job, which was on a game show. Um, but they, it was called Face the Music, and the idea was the contestants had to name the song, but then the song title was a clue to a, a puzzle like a famous person or a famous place, and we had to write those puzzles using real song titles. So that was my first writing gig. Hmm. And did, how long did that show run for? Do you remember? It ran for a couple of years. I worked on the first full season of it. You know, in television... You do a season's worth of show in a very compact amount of time because they're trying to you know, spend as little money as possible. So we did like 80 shows in three months, and then we had a, a hiatus, and then they brought me back for the second season. But uh, a few weeks into that second season, I got offered a job on a comedy, a sketch comedy show on ABC called Fridays, so I left there to take that. And does Friday, is Friday similar to the SNL? Yes, it was ABC's very, <laughs> very poor man's uh, response to uh, Saturday Night Live. It ran on Friday nights at 1130. It was a 70-minute show. For some reason, they decided to go 70 minutes, not 60 and not 90. And uh, there, it was a sketch comedy show, very similar to SNL. Um Larry David was one of the, the cast members. Michael Richards, who went on to uh, be on Seinfeld, was one of the cast members. And uh, I wrote sketches along with the rest of the writing staff for that show. Oh, wow, that's amazing. You weren't, like, scared yeah. or shaking in your boots when, like, your first week on the job? Oh, you're always shaking in your boots. Every every job you get, you're shaking in your boots the first week <laughs> on the job. But, you know, you, you just kind of learn that that's, it goes with the territory. And what I've found over the years is whether I'm starting a new job or starting a new script, you're always scared when, it ha when you start and then you get into it and then you just realize, oh, I, I, I know what I'm doing here. So you just, you just have to manage the fear. The fear never goes away. You just have to manage it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you said your brother was a comedian and I, I've, I've been watching a lot of the things that you've been doing online. And I remember you saying that he had friends that were insanely as funny as well. Big names in comedy. Yeah. So his best friend, when I was in college, his best friend was Larry David. And so I was hanging out with Larry David uh, as a 20 year old kid. I mean, we, I played golf with him. He came to our Thanksgiving. Um, he was around the house a lot. So, yeah, these were the type of people that I was hanging out with. Now, there were other people who were really just as funny and just as incredible who never became as famous as Larry. 
people like John DeBellis, and David Say, uh, these were people who were really well known in the comedy world. And I was around these people constantly. And so, like I said, you know, I was just little Kelton. That's how everybody knew me. And in fact, my first couple of years in stand-up, I was just known as Little Kelton. (laughs) (laughs) Original. (laughs) I I, I think it took people two or three years to learn my first name. (laughs) Right, right. But it's easy. You have the uh, alliteration going on there with the double Ks. Yeah, and people used to ask me, uh, they'd say, oh, Kevin Kelton, what's your middle name? You know, with the the allusion to... uh, The third K. Ks. So, so after a few years, I found out the, the perfect answer to shut somebody up. They'd say, oh, your name's Kevin Kelton. What's your middle name? I'd say, Clux. Oh, wow. That <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> so what happened in that house to where everybody was funny? Was the house haunted? Well, did, <laughs> did... <laughs> That's a great question. I have three older brothers. There were four boys in the house. And actually, Bobby and I were not the funniest ones. Our oldest brother, Bruce, was, and we still consider him to be the funniest one in the family. And he's a judge. He's a oh, wow. judge. Um, but that's a good question, Roxanne. So when we were growing up, we had what we called games that we would play. Now, when I say games, I don't mean like Monopoly or baseball, although we were athletic. We had these ongoing improvisations with running characters and running storylines that we would act out. But we didn't know the word improvisation back then, so we called them games. And we had like 12 different games with, you know, very definitive characters that we knew and each had, we each had our own parts to play. And we would just latch into these games all day long. So I was doing improv from an early age and I didn't really realize it but that's what my brothers and i were like that's really fantastic that's dope like how many how many of you are there your siblings four Four? and and i was the youngest right and and a lot of the games were created so they could play with me because they thought i was cute um and i guess at some point in my life i was but um (laughs) so for instance i'll give you an example one of the games one of the early games that we had was called toughy And I was toughy. I was the toughest kid in town. And the idea was I had a good gang. By the way, I was growing up just around the time that West Side Story came out. Okay. That affected you deeply. Kind of a cultural thing back then, you know, the Jets and the Sharks. So I was toughy, the toughest kid in town. And I had a a gang of, of good guys. And then there was another gang that was bad guys. And my brothers would play all of these different characters. And essentially, they used it as a reason to wrestle with me. (laughs) You know, they would let me beat them up. And they would get on their knees because I was so small. And, um, like, I'll give you the idea of some of the characters. Pokey Johnson was one of the guys on on the bad gang. And he would poke you to to fight you. He would, like, (laughs) use his fingers to kind of poke you to death. Um, And then there was a guy who was called Slinky Deke. And he moved like a slinky. These were characters that my brothers made up, and they would come at me, and they would fight me, and I'd beat them up, and, and that was our game. You can see what kids can accomplish when the internet is put down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we had to be creative. All we had was some television and some records. Right, <laughs> exactly. We to a lot of comedy albums. We had comedy albums in the house, 
Now, these are some names that may not mean anything to you or some of your, your you know, millennial listeners, but the, the comedians that we knew back then were Jackie Mason, Jackie Vernon, of course, Bill Cosby, uh, Bob Newhart, Shelley, um, oh, I'm blanking on his last name. He's a great comedian. Um, and we would listen to these albums over and over and over again. Oh, wow. And how, how old were you listening? Weren't they kind of racy back then? Like, didn't they curse and... Well, actually, not, not, um, there were people like, you know, Red Fox did, but no, not the ones that, that we listened to in my house. Okay. They were fairly generic television versions of stand-up comedy. Um, but, you know, we did love comedy. We would watch all the comedians on TV when I was old enough to stay up to, you know, watch the Carson show. Um, we knew who all the different comedians were. We had an encyclopedic knowledge of these people. And uh, so it was a hobby. Now, none of us were thinking of going into that business. It was just what we loved. But subconsciously, that is that is completely going into the business. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think now of all the time that I spent in front of the TV that my parents were telling me was wasted time. And I was actually training myself for a very lucrative career. I'm at work, mom. That's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> Had I only known. <laughs> right. Get your little tie. She'll, she'll buy it. And yeah. what are your do? I want to know what, since you've been in the business so long and you've seen so many people leave and you've been around so many great talents, a lot of people who have been in the business for a long time speak about people that have, have had the talent and have had that star power, but just couldn't break through. What do you think is the reason for a lot of the times people don't break through? Wow, great question again. Um, sometimes it's just the it factor, as they say. Some people have it, some people don't. But often, quite frankly, it's just, sometimes it's just blind luck. Like, for instance, let's talk about Larry David. Larry was a guy who started as a stand-up, and other stand-ups found him very funny, but the audiences didn't get him at all, and he, they would stare at him, and sometimes they would get very impatient with him. And there were many times where Larry just would end his, his set short, he would curse out the audience, drop the mic, and leave. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there was an ongoing joke, I'll clean this up for your show, there was an ongoing joke that Larry's closing line was F you <laughs> because he would just get so upset with the audience sometimes that he would use that euphemism, um, drop the mic and walk off stage. And, That's how you get you know, Nobody, nobody would have guessed that Larry would go on to have the, the commercial television success that he ended up having, not only creating and running Seinfeld for you know so many years, but then starring in and running his own show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, on HBO. People thought maybe he'd get into movies or he'd be successful as a writer, but nobody really expected him to be as as massively successful as he was, or as he is, I should say. But that happened because Jerry Seinfeld got an NBC deal to develop a sitcom, and he chose Larry to do it with. If he had chosen Bobby or somebody else, the world would be a different place. Wow, that's amazing. Little The little things. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So have you... And ever- I mean, Larry wrote, wrote scripts before Seinfeld. He wrote scripts for other shows that they thought were so bad they wouldn't even produce them. 
he had, you know, scripts optioned, movies optioned that never got made. And, you know, he could have just been another, you know, struggling writer. Hmm. Now, a tale for the ages. That That's movie worthy. That's film worthy. He should definitely be writing his story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is, people would love to see that. And before we go into break, yeah. I would love to know what's the worst joke either you remember writing or hearing out in oh. the circuit. Oh, that's a that's a hard question to answer because you tend to forget those. <laughs> you, you try to forget them. The worst joke that I ever wrote. Uh, oh, I can tell you what it is actually, and and I'm going to prepare you for this. Now, this was when I was in college, and <clears throat> we didn't have the sensitivity to sexism that we have now. Gotcha, gotcha. But um, uh, I, I got my start, you know, I was writing for my brother, as I said, but I found some other kids in my college. I went to the State University of New York in Albany, and I found some other kids that were into comedy like me, and we, were, we decided to do a um, radio show on the college radio station. And it was a sketch comedy show because we liked Saturday Night Live, so we were doing these radio sketches. And one of the first sketches that we aired, the, the, the station went from AM to FM in the middle of my senior year. And it was a big deal on campus, so everybody was tuning in because the FM station was going live. And we happened to be the first full show that was on because it went on on a Wednesday night at like 9.40, and our show started at 10 o'clock. So we were the first full show to air. And back then, uh, again, a long time ago, you won't know this reference, Roxanne, but there was a very famous television commercial for a product called Geritol. <laughs> Geritol was sort of like something that you took, an elixir that gave you energy. It was kind of a pick-me-up. It was sort of like some of the, the five-hour energy drinks that, that you would take today. Gotcha. But this was a very well-known product, and they had very famous set of commercials where uh, a man would talk about his wife. It was geared towards... Um, housewives and he would talk about how great she was and the last line of this commercial was always my wife i think i'll keep her well we wrote a parody of that where a guy starts talking about his wife and as he's reminiscing about her you start to realize this woman is cheating on him she's spending his money she's a horrible mother to their kids she's been too tiny to him behind his back and he starts to realize that during the monologue and at the end of the monologue, he's so mad, he says, my wife, I think I'll beat her. Well, again, I would never do that joke now. I feel horrible just repeating it. But this was 1977 or 78. And when that went out over the air, we got a wave of complaints. And they were threatening to close down the radio station on the second day because of this. Uh, luckily, that didn't happen. But... Um, I became kind of a, uh, a negative celebrity on campus because of the uh, controversy over that one joke. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Have, have you ever heard of that before, having some, someone writing a joke that may have ruined their career? Um, I've heard of, yeah, there are, there are people that have told jokes that have definitely heard them. In fact, there was a controversy about a year or two ago with a, a writer from Saturday Night Live named Katie Rich, who I believe writes a lot of the Weekend Update jokes. Well, on her own Twitter feed, she made a joke about Baron Trump. 
that got her suspended from SNL for uh, half of a season because the backlash was so strong against that. And it was on her own Twitter feed. But that's the the nature of the, the world we live in now. It's very politically correct out there. You make the wrong joke, you can get into a world of trouble. Look at what happened with, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but the, the, the comedian who held up the, the fake head. Oh, uh, Trump, Kathy Griffin. Kathy Griffin, thank you. Okay. You know, Kathy Griffin, a very funny woman, one bad moment, and that changed her career and maybe her life. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Now, we're going to take a short break, you guys. We're going to be right back with Kevin. This The song that's playing right now is from the Pamela Roxanne playlist available on Spotify. All you have to do is type in Pamela Roxanne in the search bar, and you'll see a lovely little cartoon of me. Just click it, and you can jam with me on to work, to drop off the kids, all that jazz. Now, we're going to jam, and we'll be right back. Okay, that wasn't so bad. Okay, you guys, we are back, and I have a special guest in the building. This is Kevin Kelton, a wonderful producer out of L.A. You still with us, Kev? I'm here. I danced the whole way through the break. It was great music. I know. That's right. (laughs) So you've worked on several shows, 22 to be exact. Do you have a favorite out of the bunch? Uh, Yeah, I guess Saturday Night Live ended up being my favorite because it had more creative freedom and you know, it's very easy when people say, what have you worked on? You mentioned that. Everybody knows it. Um, but there were a few others that I liked. Um, there was one early in my career called No Soap Radio, which was a combination of a sketch sitcom, like a hybrid of those two. Uh, it only ran for, uh, I think, six weeks, but that was a lot of fun to work on. And uh, there were a few that were not commercial hits, but the staff um, – of writers and the cast was so great to work with that I, I remember them fondly. Uh, one was called Mac and Jamie's Comedy Break. I worked I worked on a Jay Leno special that was a lot of fun. I worked on a Steve Martin special that was a lot of fun. Wow. With, during all of this, because these are big names. I don't know if you know, but your resume is heavier than most. And... <laughs> I don't see it that way, but I'm glad you do. I really do. When I look, when I started to research you after we discussed getting the interview, I said, wow, this guy has been everywhere in L.A. And it's really great. It's fantastic. And that's why I was very, very excited to talk to you. Well, uh, I was very fortunate. You know, sometimes writers can go a long period between jobs. Once I got into the groove, uh, I worked fairly consistently for about 14 or 15 years. And uh, I, like I said, I was just very fortunate. I, I consider that's myself having won the lottery of life. But yeah. you know, that's unheard of. That's like touched by God. That is unheard of. I know. It was, it, you know, and a lot of it had to do with having good agents, but I was very fortunate. Was there, during all of this, was there ever a feeling of, okay, I've made it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. By the time I was working on Saturday Night Live, I think I felt that way. And then uh, I came back to L.A., worked on a couple of more sketch shows. Then I had to get into sitcoms because I had kind of worked on every sketch show on television. And there was a little struggle. It took me about a year or two. I mean, I was working on other shows, but it took me about a year or two to make the transition to to sitcoms. But once I got working in sitcoms uh, and the work kept coming, yeah, I felt like I'd made it. That's wonderful. 
can you tell me, I have two quick questions and we're going to plug your podcast. Can you take me through the general process of producing a show for television and what are all the moving parts? Well, well, that's a, that's a, an all encompassing question. If briefly, process, I, you notice I said it would be quick. <laughs> it might not be. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, it's a, it's, it's very hard to do. You know, I started as a writer. I moved up the ladder until they added producer to my title. Um, I never, you know, I, I created one show that ran one episode. So I've never created a long running show. I've just worked on other people's shows. Um, that, but it's a very, very long shot to do it. But if it's something that you're compelled to do, you take your shot, and if you're if you've got the goods, you'll be able to get in. Um, the the good news for people is there are so many outlets today. When I started, there were three networks, and soon after that, Fox was a fourth outlet. Now you've got all of the pay channels, all of the streaming services, plus you could actually create content for the web, and I've worked on a couple of web series in the last few years. So that's the good news, is it's much, there's many more avenues to take your content. The downside is there's also more people vying for it because people have learned that this is a very lucrative career that that is accessible. There's now college programs and certificate programs in television writing and television producing. So, so many people are trying to break into it. It's extremely competitive. You have to learn to navigate the waters. At some point, you have to come to L.A. and live here for a while. It's very hard to do it if you're not in Los Angeles or in New York. Um, And, yeah, you're not going to start – you're not going to sell – your own original show right away. You have to start as a staff writer on somebody else's show. You have to write a sample script. Usually you have to write many sample scripts because you have to learn the craft. And once you've got a couple of good samples, you try to get an agent or a manager who will get your material out there because no one will read it directly from you. You have to have an intermediary. And then you have to hope that you're fortunate enough to land a a staff writing job on a show, be there long enough to get your next staff writing job and start to move up through the ranks and get notoriety in the business. This is how it's done. Um, and yeah, that's the answer. Well, thank you for that. I'm sure that educated a lot of people who don't know where to start from. And and by the way, I'll, I'll plug something else that I, you know, I don't own, but I, I make a little bit of money on the side. I teach television writing for the UCLA Extension Writers Program. Now, everybody's heard of UCLA, which is the state, excuse me, the University of California in Los Angeles. They have an adult education program that they call their Extension Program. And you can take courses online if you're not in Los Angeles, or if you're in LA, they have courses on the UCLA campus. And it's a very extensive um, continuing education program. They have courses in, in everything. I mean, they've got thousands of courses. And one of their big programs is the writing program. And they offer courses in all types of writing, not just television writing, but screenwriting, playwriting, fiction writing, poetry, 
nonfiction writing, novel writing. So if any of your viewers, I should say, if any of your listeners are interested in, you know, furthering their writing capabilities, learning a skill, or maybe just having some fun, uh, you know, look into UCLA. Like I said, you can take these classes online. They're 10-week courses, usually done on a quarter system. I'm starting a new class that I'm going to be teaching from October to December in television pilot writing. Um, and, you know, for I, I think these courses cost around six or seven hundred dollars. I'm not sure exactly, but it's a great way to spend, you know, 10 weeks of your life. You could do it after work or before work or on weekends and, um, you know, find out if you've got the chops to maybe do something like that professionally. You're absolutely right. I tell kids all the time that to always follow your dreams and take them wherever they take you, especially places like L.A. and New York where you can be around so many different people and you might get sidetracked and it might be the best thing for you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I saw you online doing something that how many headlocks are you giving out out there in Hollywood? Because I saw you killing it in the dojo. about 24 uh one of my friends said you know we should do something physical to, to stay in shape maybe we should take karate and it was like a, 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 a bell going off in my head i said yes that's what we should do and we found a karate studio it's called uh ed parker's kempo karate it's a well-known style of martial arts and i've been studying it since then i'm a third degree black belt i'm, I'm not uh, i'm not bruce lee but for my age and for my size i'm not bad and uh, it's a great way to clear my head, get away from all of the other stuff of Los Angeles. And uh, I've made some of my best friends in, in life I've, I've met through the dojo. That's really great. I don't know where you find the energy. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> now, can you tell me all about your podcast and where people can go find it? Yes. So I started a Facebook group about four years ago a place to discuss politics. It's called Open Fire Politics. And the reason I did that was my friends and I were all very politically, you know, we all have a lot of opinions and we like to talk about politics. But I found that because some of it was so negative and people could get so cross with each other, that it was kind of sullying up my newsfeed. And I wanted my newsfeed to be a happy place. So with another Facebook friend of mine, we decided to create a separate group where people could talk about politics. So it's confined to a, to a private group. You didn't have to worry about your boss or your school seeing, you know, your position on something and then it, it affecting you negatively because it's only members can see what goes on in there. So we created this, this political group and it took off. And now we have about 10,000 uh, people in the group. Oh, wow. It's called Open Fire Politics. You can look for it online. We also have some offshoots called Open Fire Food and Fitness, where we talk about food and fitness and recipes and things like that. We have Open Fire Entertainment, where we talk about movies and books and everything else that's entertainment related. And we have uh, Open Fire Sex and Relationships. And you can imagine what the dialogues are like in there. Oh, I can um, imagine. So they're they're all separate communities, but a lot of crossover of people. But anyways, while I was in open fire politics one day, I saw a post, someone saying, hey, I'd like to do a podcast about politics. Does anybody else want to do it? 
And I responded and a couple of other people responded and we ended up putting together a podcast that's called the more perfect union podcast. And we do it once a week. You can find it on Apple iTunes, Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, and several of the other platforms. And it's four friends from across the nation that just talk about the news of the week, but from our own individual slant. And we try to do it uh, with a little bit of humor in it. In fact, we try to do it with a lot of humor. And we call it real debate without the hate. We sometimes agree on, on issues and politicians. We sometimes disagree, but we do it in a fun way. It's like four friends sitting at a, a, a table in a restaurant and just shooting the breeze about politics each week. And we've been fortunate to build that up. We have somewhere between six and 10,000 regular listeners. Um, and uh, you can catch that uh, once a week, usually on Mondays. So the more perfect union, be there or be square. Real debate without the hate. I know that's right. And you know, one reason, that's really fantastic, 10,000. You said 10,000 subscribers? At, at our high point, we were getting 10,000. That was closer to the 2016 election. Uh, during the summer, it's gone down a little bit, I guess. Just like television ratings go down, people are less likely to listen to political podcasts when it's really sunny outside. But we still get, you know, between six and uh, six and ten. But, you know, people flock to things like that where you where you can be able to tell your truth and things with truth, like being the subtext to it, come here and it's safe for you to speak your mind freely. People flock to that like crazy. And the only reason I feel like your numbers yeah. may be down now is because it's really saturated with politicians doing press runs and stuff. But I'm sure it'll go right back up because people love stuff like that. Yeah, it'll probably go up as we get into the primary season. Um, and yeah, the, the whole podcast industry has gotten saturated because one of my frustrations is everybody on MSNBC has their own podcast and everybody on CNN <laughs> has their own podcast. And it's like, hey, guys, you're already making $10 million as an anchor on CNN. You don't need a podcast. <laughs> you're right. But, uh, that's the nature of the business. They can just repackage that audio and turn it into a podcast. That's, I, I find the same thing every program. When Dr. Phil had a podcast, I was thinking, what are you going to talk about that's not on the show already? Right, right, right. <laughs> Leave this for us, people like you and me, that, you know, do it for fun and maybe make a couple of bucks if we sell a few ads. You know, why do we have to, you know, it's like if I like playing softball, I don't want, you know, uh, many, you know, who's a, who's a, who's a well-known baseball player today? I think <laughs> you picked the wrong sport, and, baby. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I right. couldn't. But I, I don't need, a, I don't need a, a, a major league baseball player competing with me on the softball field. You're absolutely like, right. Major league baseball. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. And so... Tell people how they can follow, like, stalk you, hide in your bushes. How can they find you? <laughs> well, they seem to do it pretty well the way it is. But uh, <laughs> look for, uh, just if you want to learn more about me, just Google my name. Uh, I also have a website, kevinkelton.com, where I talk about my teaching. And uh, you can find some of my videos of stuff that I had on SNL and other shows. Um, like I said, uh, if you want to, if you're looking for a fun place to hang out on Facebook, look for the Open Fire Groups, Open Fire Politics, Open Fire Food and Fitness, Open Fire Sex and Relationships, 
and Open Fire Entertainment. And also please uh, find and subscribe to the More Perfect Union podcast, Real Debate Without the Hate. Uh, if you're into politics, and especially if you're, if you're not a far-right conservative, you're more likely to like our show. If you're a conservative, you may not like it as much because we tend to be very critical of um, the current president and many of his policies. But um, if, you, if you like politics and you're, and you're slightly left of center, uh, you're going to probably enjoy us. Wonderful. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for stopping by the show. I really, really do appreciate it. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you for having me, Pamela. No problem. No, you stay on the line, but I'm going to say goodbye to these people in my house. Okay. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening today, and I'll be back next week with more of the drama. You can listen to these songs that are about to play right now. They're available on Spotify. It's called the Summer Jam Playlist with Pamela Roxanne. Just type that into your search bar on Spotify, and a lovely little cartoon of me will pop up. You click it, you jam with me, honey. I'll see you next week.